0: Section 8 of The Analysis of Mind. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by TechSavvy. The Analysis of Mind by Bertrand Russell. Section 8. The Definition of Perception in lecture five we found reason to think that the ultimate constituents of the world do not have the characteristics of either mind or matter as ordinarily understood they are not solid persistent objects moving through space nor are they fragments of consciousness but we found two ways of grouping particulars one into things or pieces of matter the other into series of perspectives each series being what may be called a biography before we can define either sensations or images it is necessary to consider this twofold classification in somewhat greater detail and to derive from it a definition of perception it should be said that in so far as the classification assumes the whole world of physics including its unperceived portions it contains hypothetical elements But we will not linger on the grounds for admitting these which belong to the philosophy of physics rather than of psychology when i speak of ultimate constituents i do not mean necessarily such as are theoretically incapable of analysis but only such as at present we can see no means of analyzing i speak of such constituents as particulars or as relative particulars when i wish to emphasize the fact that they may be themselves complex the physical classification of particulars collects together all those that are aspects of one thing given any one particular it is often found we do not say always that there are a number of other particulars differing from this one in gradually increasing degrees those or some of those that differ from it only very slightly will be found to differ approximately according to certain laws which may be called in a generalized sense the laws of perspective as a special case this approximation grows more and more nearly exact as the difference grows less in technical language the laws of perspective account for the differences to the first order of small quantities and other laws are only required to account for the second-order differences that is to say as the difference diminishes the part of the difference which is not according to the laws of perspective diminishes much more rapidly and bears to the total difference a ratio which tends towards zero as both are made smaller and smaller by this means we can theoretically collect together a number of particulars which may be defined as the aspects or appearances of one thing at one time. If the laws of perspective were sufficiently known, the connection between different aspects would be expressed in differential equations. This gives us, so far, only those particulars which constitute one thing at one time. This set of particulars may be called a momentary thing, to define that series of momentary things that constitute the successive states of one thing is a problem involving the laws of dynamics. This gives the laws governing the change of aspects from one time to a slightly later time with the same sort of differential approximation to exactness as we obtain for spatially neighboring aspects to the laws of perspective. Thus, a momentary thing is a set of particulars while a thing which may be identified with the whole history of the thing is a series of such set of particulars the particulars in one set are collected together by the laws of perspective the successive sets are collected together by the laws of dynamics this is the view of the world which is appropriate to traditional physics the definition of a momentary thing involves problems concerning time since the particulars constituting a momentary thing will not be all simultaneous but will travel outward from the thing with the velocity of light, in case the thing is in vacuum there are complications connected with relativity but for our present purpose they are not vital and i shall ignore them instead of first collecting together all the particulars constituting a momentary thing And then forming the series of successive sets, we might have first collected together a series of successive aspects related by the laws of dynamics, and then have formed the set of such series related by the laws of perspective. To illustrate by the case of an actor on the stage, our first plan was to collect together all the aspects which he presents to different spectators at one time, and then to form the series of such sets our second plan is first to collect together all the aspects which he presents successively to a given spectator and then to do the same thing for the other spectators thus forming a set of series instead of a series of sets the first plan tells us what he does the second the impressions he produces this second way of classifying particulars is one which obviously has more relevance to psychology than the other It is partly by this second method of classification that we obtain definitions of one experience or biography or person. This method of classification is also essential to the definition of sensations and images, as I shall endeavor to prove later on. But we must first amplify the definition of perspectives and biographies. In our illustration of the actor, we spoke, for the moment, as though each spectator's mind were wholly occupied by the one actor. If this were the case it might be possible to define the biography of one spectator as a series of successive aspects of the actor related according to the laws of dynamics but in fact this is not the case we are at all times during our waking life receiving a variety of impressions which are aspects of a variety of things we have to consider what binds together two simultaneous sensations in one person or more generally Any two occurrences which form part of one experience. We might say, adhering to the standpoint of physics, that two aspects of different things belong to the same perspective when they are in the same place. But this would not really help us, since a place has not yet been defined. Can we define what is meant by saying the two aspects are in the same place without introducing anything beyond the laws of perspective and dynamics? i do not feel sure whether it is possible to frame such a definition or not accordingly i shall not assume that it is possible but shall seek other characteristics by which a perspective or biography may be defined when for example we see one man and hear another speaking at the same time what we see and what we hear have a relation which we can perceive which makes the two together form in some sense one experience it is when this relation exists that two occurrences become associated. Simon's engram is formed by all that we experience at one time. He speaks of two parts of this total as having the relation of nibi Neander, which is reminiscent of Herbert's juice Amen. I think the relation may be simply called simultaneity it might be said that any moment all sorts of things that are not part of my experience are happening in the world and that therefore the relation we are seeking to define cannot be merely simultaneity. this however would be an error the sort of error that the theory of relativity avoids there is not one universal time except by an elaborate construction There are only local times, each of which may be taken to be the time within one biography. Accordingly, if I am, say, hearing a sound, the only occurrences that are, in any simple sense, simultaneous with my sensation, are events in my private world. Example in my biography. We may therefore define the perspective to which the sensation in question belongs as a set of particulars that are simultaneous with this sensation. And similarly, we may define the biography to which the sensation belongs as a set of particulars that are earlier or later than, or simultaneous with, the given sensation. Moreover, the very same definitions can be applied to particulars which are not sensations. They are actually required for the theory of relativity. If we are to give a philosophical explanation of what is meant by local time in that theory, the relations of simultaneity and the succession are known to us in our own experience they may be analyzable but that does not affect their suitability for defining perspectives and biographies such time relations as can be constructed between events in different biographies are of a different kind they are not experienced and are merely logical being designed to afford convenient ways of stating the correlations between different biographies It is not only by time relations that the parts of one biography are collected together in the case of living beings. In this case there are the mimic phenomena which constitute the unity of one experience, and transform mere occurrences into experiences. I have already dwelt upon the importance of mimic phenomena for psychology, and shall not enlarge upon them now beyond observing that they are what transforms a biography in our technical sense into a life it is they that give the continuity of a person or a mind but there is no reason to suppose that mimic phenomena are associated with biographies except in the case of animals and plants our twofold classification of particulars gives rise to the dualism of body and biography in regard to everything in the universe and not only in regard to living things this arises as follows every particular of the sort considered by physics is a member of two groups one the group of particulars constituting the other aspects of the same physical object two the group of particulars that have direct time relations to the given particular each of these is associated with a place when i look at a star my sensation is one a member of a group Of particulars which is the star and which is associated with the place where the star is 2 a member of the group of particulars which is my biography and which is associated with the place where I am I have explained elsewhere the manner in which space is constructed on this theory and in which the position of perspective is brought into relation with the position of a physical object the result is that every particular of the kind relevant to physics is associated with two places Example, my sensation of the star is associated with the place where I am and with the place where the star is. This dualism has nothing to do with any mind that I may be supposed to possess. It exists in exactly the same sense if I am replaced by a photographic plate. We may call the two places the active and the passive place, respectively. Thus, in the case of a perception or photograph of a star, the active place is the place where the star is, while the passive place is the place where the percipient or the photographic plate is. I use these as mere names. I do not want to introduce any notion of activity. We can thus, without departing from physics, collect together all the particulars actively at a given place, or all the particulars passively at a given place. In our own case, the one group is our body or our brain, while the other is our mind, in so far as it consists of perceptions. In the case of the photographic plate, the first group is the plate as dealt with by physics, the second, the aspect of the heavens which it photographs. For the sake of schematic simplicity, I am ignoring various complications connected with time, which require some tedious but perfectly feasible elaborations thus what may be called subjectivity in the point of view is not a distinctive peculiarity of mind it is present just as much in the photographic plate and the photographic plate has its biography as well as its matter but this biography is an affair of physics and has none of the peculiar characteristics by which mental phenomena are distinguished with the sole exception of subjectivity adhering for the moment to the standpoint of physics we may define a perception of an object as the appearance of the object from a place where there is a brain or in lower animals some suitable nervous structure with sense organs and nerves forming part of intervening medium. such appearances of objects are distinguished from appearances in other places by certain peculiarities namely one they give rise to nemic phenomena two they are themselves affected by nemic phenomena that is to say they may be remembered and associated or influence our habits or give rise to images etc and they are themselves different from what they would have been if our past experience had been different for example the effect of a spoken sentence upon the hearer depends upon whether the hearer knows the language or not which is a question of past experience It is these two characteristics, both connected with nemic phenomena, that distinguish perceptions from the appearance of objects in places where there is no living being. Theoretically, though often not practically, we can, in our perception of an object, separate the part which is due to past experience from the part which proceeds without nemic influences out of the character of the object. We may define as sensation that part which proceeds in this way, while the remainder which is nemic phenomena will have to be added to the sensation to make up what is called the perception. According to this definition, the sensation is a theoretical core in the actual experience. The actual experience is the perception. It is obvious that there are grave difficulties in carrying out these definitions, but we will not linger over them. We have to pass as soon as we can from the physical standpoint which we have been hitherto adopting to the standpoint of the psychology in which we make more use of introspection in the first of the three senses discussed in the preceding lecture but before making the transition there are two points which must be made clear first everything outside my own personal biography is outside my experience therefore if anything can be known by me outside my biography it can only be known in one of two ways one by inference from things within my biography or two by some a priori principle independent of experience i do not myself believe that anything approaching certainty is to be attained by either of these methods and therefore whatever lies outside my personal biography must be regarded theoretically as hypothesis The theoretical argument for adopting the hypothesis is that it simplifies the statement of the laws according to which events happen in our experience. But there is no very good ground for supposing that a simple law is more likely to be true than a complicated law, though there is good ground for assuming a simple law in scientific practice as a working hypothesis, if it explains the facts as well as another which is less simple belief in the existence of things outside my own biography exists antecedently to evidence and can only be destroyed if at all by a long course of philosophic doubt for purposes of science it is justified practically by the simplification which it introduces into the laws of physics but from the standpoint of theoretical logic it must be regarded as a prejudice not as a well-grounded theory with this provision, I propose to continue yielding to the prejudice. The second point concerns the relating of our point of view to that which regards sensations as caused by stimuli external to the nervous system, or at least to the brain, and distinguishes images as centrally excited, example due to causes in the brain which cannot be traced back to anything affecting the sense organs. It is clear that, if our analysis of physical objects has been valid, this way of defining sensations need reinterpretation. It is also clear that we must be able to find such a new interpretation if our theory is to be admissible. To make the matter clear, we will take the simplest possible illustration. Consider a certain star, and suppose for the moment that its size is negligible that is to say we will regard it as for practical purposes a luminous point let us further suppose that it exists only for a very brief time say a second then according to physics what happens is that a spherical wave of light travels outward from the star through space just as when you drop a stone into a stagnant pond ripples travel outward from the place where the stone hid the water a wave of light travels with a certain very nearly constant velocity roughly three hundred thousand kilometers per second this velocity may be ascertained by sending a flash of light to a mirror and observing how long it takes before the reflected flash reaches you just as the velocity of the sound may be ascertained by means of an echo What it is that happens when a wave of light reaches a given place, we cannot tell, except in the sole case when the place in question is a brain connected with an eye which is turned in the right direction. In this one very special case we know what happens. We have the sensation called seeing the star. In all other cases, though we know, more or less hypothetically, some of the correlations and abstract properties of the appearance of the star, we do not know the appearance itself now you may for the sake of illustration compare the different appearances of the star to the conjugation of the greek verb except that the number of its parts is really infinitive and not only apparently so to the despairing schoolboy in vacuum the parts are regular and can be deprived from the imaginary root according to the laws of grammar example of perspective the star being situated in empty space it may be defined for purposes of physics as consisting of all those appearances which it presents in vacuum together with those which according to the laws of perspective it would present elsewhere if its appearances elsewhere were regular this is merely the adaptation of the definition of matter which i gave in an earlier lecture the appearance of a star at a certain place if it is regular does not require any cause or explanation beyond the existence of the star every regular appearance is an actual member of the system which is the star and its causation is entirely internal to that system we may express this by saying that a regular appearance is due to the star alone and is actually part of the star in the sense in which a man is part of the human race but presently the light of the star reaches our atmosphere it begins to be refracted and dimmed by mist and its velocity is slightly diminished at last it reaches a human eye where a complicated process takes place ending in a sensation which gives us our grounds for believing in all that has gone before now the irregular appearances of the star are not strictly speaking members of the system which is the star according to our definition of matter the irregular appearances however are not merely irregular they proceed according to laws which cannot be stated in terms of the matter through which the light has passed on its way the sources of an irregular appearance are therefore twofold one the object which is appearing irregularly two the intervening medium it should be observed that While the conception of regular appearance is perfectly precise, the conception of an irregular appearance is one capable of any degree of vagueness. When the distorting influence of the medium is sufficiently great, the resulting particular can no longer be regarded as an appearance of an object, but must be treated on its own account. This happens especially when the particular in question cannot be traced back to one object but is a blend of two or more. This case is normal in perception. We see as one what the microscope or telescope reveals to many different objects. The notion of perception is therefore not a precise one. We perceive things more or less, but always with a very considerable amount of vagueness and confusion. In considering irregular appearances, there are certain very natural mistakes which must be avoided. In order that a particular may count as an irregular appearance of a certain object, it is not necessary that it should bear any resemblance to the regular appearances as regard its intrinsic qualities. All that is necessary is that it should be derivable from the regular appearances by the laws which express the distorting influence of the medium. When it is so derivable, the particular in question may be regarded as caused by the regular appearances, and therefore by the object itself together with the modifications resulting from the medium. In other cases, the particular in question may, in the same sense, be regarded as caused by several objects together with the medium. In this case, it may be called a confused appearance of several objects. If it happens to be in a brain, it may be called a confused perception of these objects. All actual perception is confused to a greater or less extent we can now interpret in terms of our theory the distinction between those mental occurrences which are said to have an external stimulus and those which are said to have a centrally excited example to have no stimulus external to the brain when a mental occurrence can be regarded as an appearance of an object external to a brain however irregular or even a confused appearance of several such objects then we may regard it as having for its stimulus the object or objects in question, or their appearances at the sense-organ concerned. When, on the other hand, a mental occurrence has not sufficient connection with objects external to the brain to be regarded as an appearance of such objects, then its physical causation, if any, will have to be sought in the brain. In the former case, it can be called a perception. In the latter, it cannot be so called but the distinction is one of degree not of kind until this is realized no satisfactory theory of perception sensation or imagination is possible end of section 8 recording by techsavvy www.techsavvy.wordpress.com